Welcome. I'm Dr. David Rosenthal, and I'm the medical director for the Center for Transgender Care here at Northwell Health. I'd like to speak to you today about the topic, Transgender Health, What Every Provider Should Know. I don't have any disclosures to make, but I do receive grant funding from the New York State AIDS Institute, HRSA, as well as CDC. Our learning objectives today are to summarize the barriers for transgender patients and to seek health care and how to overcome them, and also how to describe to make one describe how to make one's office welcoming to sexual minority populations and identify the unique medical needs of transgender patients. Who do you recognize from this picture? Hopefully a lot of people that you've, you've seen before. The fact is, is that transgender individuals are all over media at this point. This article, which appeared in March of the New York Times, talked about 900 voices from Gen Z and talked about the great diversity that we see. We also see the son of Sonny and Cher. We see Caitlyn Jenner. We see Orange is the New Black, as well as this great ad that was on Gillette about how a transgender man had his first shave with his father on his back, coaching him what to do. And of course, Pose. The fact is, is that we're looking at media and gender so much more right now, but it's important that we not only see it on TV, but we're sure how to take care of these patients and handle these situations when we see them in the clinical environment. This slide shows the difference between equality and equity. In this first image, we see three boys watching a baseball game. All three boys are standing on a box and all have the same support underneath them. But what we see now is actually, the, in the first picture, the first boy couldn't see anything. In the second image, they've moved, we've moved around the boxes so that all three boys have the opportunity to be able to see the game without any supports. But what we're trying to do in healthcare is we're trying to remove the fence. We're trying to take away the barriers. And so what we're doing is we're replacing the fence with a different kind of a fence so that patients can still make sure they have the safety they need, but they can access healthcare without having any systemic barriers. We all grow up in certain environments, and these environments are essential to the, um, the attitudes that we develop and how we're able to take care of ourselves. But the, the fact is, is that we also develop implicit or unconscious bias. This is a bias that happens automatically. It's outside of our control, and it's triggered by our brain to make when, they, when we make quick judgments of people and situations that are influenced by our background, cultural environment, and personal experiences. The fact is, is that we all had certain unconscious biases that we have developed based off of the environment we grew up in. And one of those may be when you look at an individual, you immediately decide based on how they look or how they carry themselves, if they're male or female. As healthcare professionals, we need to make sure that we're addressing these unconscious bias and we're able to make sure that we're addressing patients as they want to be addressed and addressing our own unconscious bias so that we can provide the best healthcare possible. Looking at things that are driving transgender care, there are a number of different things that are important in the healthcare system. One is the 2015 Federal Register requirements for medical records, which are part of the 2019 requirements for performing interoperability. This requires that inpatient medical records have the ability to capture and display information regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. But of course, we want to do more than just meet the minimal standard. We want to make sure we're providing excellent, excellent care for our patients. And so we need to respect the patient bill of rights in the hospital, according to the law, the recommendations of the Joint Commission, as well as our culture of care here at Northwell Health, where we make sure we connect our patients, we're aware of our patients' needs, we respect our patients, and we show great empathy. And of course, the care that we provide in our hospitals, institutions, and in our, our um, community practices, we need to make sure that we're providing outstanding care for all individuals and we respect the diversity, which is why we were able to receive one of the Diversity Inc. awards as well as the Healthcare Equity Index Award for the Human Rights Coalition.
When we're looking at the LGBT population, it makes up approximately 8 to 9 percent of New York State, and we're seeing uh, of people that have had some same-sex behavior, and about 4 to 5 percent of individuals who identify as LGBT. So we're talking about a large proportion of the patients that we see. So if you think that you have not seen anyone who's LGBT in your clinical practice, then I think you probably are not asking or being able to cap capture that information. And it's really important, since we're talking about the significant proportion of our population, that we address the patient's needs and we're able to, to figure out what care, what care we need to provide to them based specifically on their LGBT status. This slide talks about the gender-bred person. The gender-bred person is a phenomenal resource. And the fact is, is we see that sexuality is not simply male or female, but there's multiple different aspects of gender. A friend and colleague of mine actually said that gender identity is what's between your ears, not what's between your hips. And I think if we think about gender identity as the way not a patient, if they're on hormones or they've had surgery or the way they dress or the way they, they appear, but rather how they identify themselves and how they characterize themselves, that's what's most important. When we're asking a patient about what their race or ethnicity is, we don't look at someone and make an assumption what their race or ethnicity is. And if a patient comes to us and says, you know what, I just did 23andMe and I have a new set of interpretation of my genetics and I wanna now call myself a different race or a different ethnicity, we don't argue with that patient and say that they, they're not correct or that's not the way we should reflect things. The same thing applies to gender. Gender identity is something that the patient has in their own conception and their own mind. And it's something we need to only, if we only when we ask the patient what we're doing is the way that we can address those needs for the patient. So let's break down some of these terms and look at the LGBTQIA rainbow. So the LGBTQIA rainbow talks about the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and allies and asexual individuals. The fact is, is it encompasses a much larger group than we initially thought, and it's important that we're addressing all of the needs of this community. Gender identity is the sense of one's identity as being masculine or feminine or leaning towards a certain societal role. It's not necessarily reflective of other things, and one gender identity is individuals who identify themselves as being transgender. This is completely different than sexual orientation, which is a romantic or sexual attraction or affection to others. When we take a look at gender identity, gender identity is something that we can define as um, the identity of one's ability to, the identity of, one, of oneself. It's important for us to be able to examine, for example, a patient who is a transgender male, so we call them transmasculine or trans male, so that individual is born female and identifies as being male. This person may be sexually attracted to someone who's female, so even though they were born female, and identify as male, but they're sexually attracted to someone who's female, this person is considered to be heterosexual because they identify as male and are sexually attracted to someone who is female. So from this example, you can see how their sexual orientation, who they're attracted to, is very different than their gender identity. It's important that we don't conflate the two terms and we separate them so we can better address the needs of our patients. So let's break apart the T and talk about the different groups of transgender individuals. So some groups are assigned male at birth. These are individuals that are considered trans females because they're assigned male at birth and they transition to a female gender. So these are trans women or trans feminine individuals, whereas the opposite is true for individuals that are trans masculine. They're born female and they transition to a male gender. So this is important for us to know the difference between trans men and trans women. But there's also a group of individuals that are genderqueer, genderfluid, or non-binary, and some say gender non-conforming. And these individuals live somewhere else on the gender spectrum. 
When we're thinking about gender, we're not just thinking about individuals that are masculine or feminine, male or female, and it's not just a binomial distribution, but we think about gender on a distribution with these individuals following somewhere in the middle. Also, when we're understanding those individuals that are trans or part of the trans community or the TGNC community, we need to understand what trans people call individuals who are not members of the trans community. And if you think back to organic chemistry and you think about the, the carbon molecule and you're thinking about stereoisomers, if we think about two side chains that are on the same side of the carbon molecule, we're talking about things that are in cis formation, whereas things that are in opposite ends of the carbon molecule are in trans formation. So trans individuals were born or signed at birth one gender and identify with a gender identity as a different gender, so they're trans. Individuals that are assigned at birth being male and identify as male are considered to be cis. Because of the needs that we had for the transgender community, we were able to form the Center for Transgender Care in July of 2016 here at Northwell Health. We brought together a combination of eight different service lines um, to be able to provide the needs for psychiatry, medicine, pediatrics, OBGYN, surgery, urology, otolaryngology, and others to be able to provide for the comprehensive healthcare needs of the transgender and gender nonconforming community. It's also important that we have input for community-based organizations, legal and insurance re um, reflections, as well as our community advisory board of individuals who have the trans experience and our Office of Health Equity. In addition, we have support from the institution, and our Center for Transgender Care is made up of a clinical care branch, which is constructed of two major central hubs at this point. In the Western region, we have the Friedman Center for Transgender Care, um, located at Lenox Hill, and we have in the central region, the Center for Transgender Care um, in Long Island. We don't have an Eastern region right now. And each of these sites provides multiple different healthcare services for individuals of the trans experience. But it's important in addition to providing clinical care that we're able to develop research and education opportunities such as this one and we're able to address infrastructure such as making sure we have fair hiring practices, we address marketing, patient experience, patient safety, and we have medical records that can, can reflect the trans experience as well. So all of these projects fall within the lead, under the leadership of the Center for Transgender Care in collaboration with Diversity and Health Equity, the Center for Equity of Care, Consumer Advisory Board, as well as every service line in the health system. So let's address some health disparities which exist for um, the transgender community. First, let's look at LGBT youth. LGBT youth have a much higher rate of alcohol and substance abuse than non-LGBT identified youth. We know that 53% of homeless LGBT youth uh, have a history of alcohol and substance abuse, and we know that LGBT youth are more likely to succeed in treatment when they feel safe to address all the factors that contribute to use and or relapse. Furthermore, it's important to realize that we need to address the needs of transgender individuals and we need to try to engage them within healthcare in a family-based context as much as possible. This survey, which was presented in January from the MMWR, talks about that 2% of high school students identify as transgender in a survey that was performed in high schools across the country. It's important to note that 35% of these individuals attempt suicide and one of the most important factors for transgender youth and LGBT youth is to have a supportive home parental environment. So anything we can do to help the young adult be able to um, do well within the context of a family environment and help create that stable environment or assist with that would make an enormous difference. But unfortunately, the trans community have other healthcare disparities, such as mental health concerns, housing and food insecurity, education, 
substance abuse, domestic and partner violence, as well as HIV and the trans female population. So it's important in addition to taking care of the standard healthcare needs of trans individuals, and they have healthcare needs just like everyone else. They can have high blood pressure, diabetes, hypertension, all of the same things that we treat every single day. We need to screen and make sure that we're addressing the unique healthcare disparity needs for the trans community to make sure that when applicable, we're addressing these needs of the patient. And the reason this is important is, is because we know that historically about 25%, 20 to 25% of individuals who are trans were actually refused to be provided medical care um, based on their gender expression alone at one point. And so it's important that we provide health care for all of our patients. One of the first patients I saw actually had a fracture of their um, arm when they were out east on Long Island. And they were afraid to go to local emergency rooms and healthcare service centers there, as well as going to local um, care providers. And so they actually hopped on the Long Island Railroad and traveled all the way to New York City for about an hour and a half before they went to a hospital in the city. It's important that at all of our healthcare institutions, we can provide trans-infirming practices and inclusive care to make sure we're addressing the needs of our patients. So this is what we're going to talk about this time, trans-affirming and inclusive practices. The fact is pronouns matter, and, the and individuals that use different pronouns find them to be very, very important. So these are pronoun stickers which are available that we have for the health system, which talk about the use of the feminine pronouns, masculine pronouns, or non-gender conforming pronouns, gender non-conforming pronouns, because we need to respect what the patient would like for us to refer to them as and what pronouns they would like to use. So I had a patient once that I asked, what was your preferred pronoun? How would you like for me to refer to you with a pronoun? And they looked at me very seriously, and they said, queen. I said, okay, queen, how can I take care of you? Because the fact is, it doesn't matter what terms I use and what terminology I need to use. The whole point is we need to engage our patients and be able to provide care for them and meet them where they're at. One of the ways we're doing this for the health system is by addressing sexual orientation and gender identity. And we're able to address this from a healthcare perspective by updating our registration system through Project Access and Sorian Financials and be able to collect sexual orientation and gender identity data and then be able to share that through our inpatient and outpatient medical record systems. This project went live in March of 2019 and at this point is active within the HIE as well as the ambulatory and very shortly within the inpatient systems. The information we collect from our patients start out with in addition to the gender field, which we've always collected, we now also collect the birth, gen the birth sex as well as the gender identity. And it's important for us to realize that if their birth sex is female and their gender identity is female, these individuals are cis, they're not trans, and there's no additional questions that are required. But if their birth sex is female and their gender identity presently is something different, let's say male, trans male, various, gender nonconforming, gender queer, anything else, then these individuals are going to be op are important. It's important for these individuals that we address them by their preferred name and their preferred pronouns. So the system will then open up fields that allow you to populate the preferred name and the preferred pronoun. Options that are available for birth sex are male, female, other, or withheld. And for gender identity are female, male, non-binary, trans female, trans male, various, or withheld. The fact is, is we ask these questions because we care. Just like we ask all of our patients what race and ethnicity and language they prefer to use, we want to make sure we understand what their sexual orientation and gender identity is. 
Now, sexual orientation is a fact that we're going to be collecting not at the front desk, but that we're going to be collecting through the clinical provision of care and during primary care visits. So we can make sure we understand someone's sexual orientation on an annual basis. Whereas gender identity is important that we capture at the front desk, making sure that we capture this information as soon as possible so we can refer to the patient with the right pronouns and the correct name during the entire office experience. But there are other things that you can do to make your office more trans-affirming and inclusive. And one of the very simple things you can do is to take a look at your signage on your restrooms. If you have single-stall rest, single restrooms in your facility, then it's important for you to consider adding gender-neutral or all-gender restrooms or gender-inclusive restroom signage because this makes these spaces so much more affirming um, to the trans population. This next bit is a video called Vanessa Goes to the Doctor. It's an eight-minute video that talks about the trans experience in going to a doctor. The first two minutes are about the waiting room experience in a negative aspect. The second two minutes are about a positive aspect to the waiting room experience. The next two are about a negative doctor's office experience, and the last two are about a positive doctor's office experience. So in these eight minutes, you can see the simple things that you can do in your offices, the simple changes you can make to make individuals feel more comfortable when they go to the doctor. To highlight the difference that we're talking about, we're capturing three different aspects of gender. The first gender is gonna be your sex on your identification, like your photo ID. And this is what we've always collected at the front desk. The birth sex is something that is a gender on an initial birth certificate. We're not asking the patients to present their birth certificate, but we want to know what their initial document said so we can know what's going on and we can determine if it's changed since that time of birth. And the gender identity is how the patient identifies their gender. So in many cases, as you can see in this Venn diagram, the center of the Venn diagram is actually much larger. It probably makes up about 98 plus percent of the patients we see um, have the same administrative gender, gender identity, and birth sex. But we know that there are individuals that have differences, and it's important that we capture that diversity so we can address the needs of the patients. Patients that are trans need all sorts of different medical services, just like everyone else, and we tend to follow the guidelines of WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, to make sure that the transgender-specific guidelines are, are there for patients. But we provide individuals with primary care, immunization, HIV prevention when appropriate, endocrinology care, mental health care, um, education, risk reduction, as well as the services of many different specialists, including plastic surgeons, breast surgeons, urologists, as well as fertility preservation. It's important patients receive the complete family of health care that they need, and they can go to a series of providers within the health system that are affirming and understand their um, that understand what's going on and they can treat the patients in the most appropriate way. There are many different guidelines which are apparent that one can see that are helpful, useful tools for individuals, including the Gay Lesbian Medical Association, the Fenway Institute, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as clinical guidelines that are available from the Endocrinology Society and from WPATH. All of these resources are available to help guide care, but what really things come down to is, is that we need to provide the same medical care for these individuals as we provide to all other patients. We need to make sure they receive equitable health care in our environments and make sure that we can address their medical needs regardless of what they are. So today I've been able to talk about the services that we provide at the Center for Transgender Care and how we collaborate with all the different service lines in the health system to really make sure the complex medical needs of patients are addressed and so we can address the overall um, issues that patients have. It's an example that I have that one of the first patients I saw was a 30-pack year smoker who actually presented with shortness of breath and difficulty breathing, was diagnosed with pneumonia in the ED, but there was also a residual mass possibly they could see underneath the pneumonia that was unclear. 
On physical examination, the patient actually presented with um, significant um, concerns and decreased air entry on the right side, and we were able to get that patient evaluated with chest X-ray and CT and diagnose lung cancer, get the patient into chemotherapy, and then into radiation therapy. So it's because this patient who had been not accessing healthcare for much of their life out of fear for stigma that was provided by the healthcare system, but the door was opened because of the resources we were able to provide here in Northwell Health. What we need to do is make sure that we can provide this kind of care for all individuals. If you have any additional questions, you can certainly reach me at any time. You can call me for more information, and you can reach out to me if you need anything else. Thank you very much. This is Dr. David Rosenthal, and hopefully you've learned something today about transgender health care. You can hopefully embed some of these ideas within your practice, regardless of what kind of practice you have. And if you need additional resources, please feel free to contact me at 516-622-5195, or email me at drosenthal at northwell.edu. Thanks so much, and have a nice day.